This morning's reading is Colossians 4, verses 2 through 6. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time, and let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, as an 18-year-old, I was really, really into guitar. By that point, I had declared music as my major, and guitar was my instrument. So I played a lot of guitar, hours a day. And that fall, I discovered a guitarist whose name was Christopher Parkening. He's a brilliant classical guitarist. At the, kind of at the end of his career now, but uh, at that time, he was uh, definitely in the prime of his playing abilities. And so I did what people do at that time. I bought a CD, uh, and on a whim, I looked at the back of the CD, and it had the, had the address for the, for the CD company. I think it was uh, Columbia Records. And so I, th- I just wrote a letter to Columbia Records. So Christopher Parkening, care of Columbia Records, blah, 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 and asked for some advice on how to play guitar and how to make a career out of guitar. And then as things happen, when you do something like that, you, you just forget about it. Well, he wrote me back. He wrote me a, a letter back a month or two later, and he said, I don't have time to uh, write and uh, respond in writing. But here's my phone number. Call me in December when I'm, when I'm not touring. And so I did what people did back then. I sat next to the wall <clears throat> to talk to him on the telephone on my parents' bed because you could only go 10 feet from where the phone was, was attached to the wall. And actually, he called me, which is uh, in some ways even cooler. So in this uh, conversation, I'm... I'm we're talking guitar. I'm asking for some advice about how to make a living as a guitar. And, and he, he's, a, he's a realist. And at that time, um, he said, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's probably six people in the world making a living at just playing classical guitar. The rest, rest of the people doing it are teaching as well as uh, performing when they can. But then he would just drop little comments in this conversation like, you know, but if the Lord wants it to happen, it'll happen. Now, this time, I'm not a Christian. And at the end of the call, he said, would you be okay if I sent you my Christian testimony? Which uh, at that time meant uh, sending two cassette tapes in the mail across the country. So at that time, he's in Los Angeles. Cassette tape is a little plastic thing you, you put inside a, a, a big player, and it makes noise. So, uh, and so a few, weeks, uh, a few weeks go by, and then the, this package comes to me. And it, sure enough, one of the, ta- one of the cassettes is uh, his Christian testimony. And then the other one is actually a sermon by John MacArthur on, on those who are true followers of Christ. So in his testimony, he was telling the story of, of basically giving himself completely to guitar. And he got to a point where he was just sick of the guitar. And so he, he, he made it his goal to retire at the age of 30 as a guitarist and live off the money he makes. Now, now that's just, this is all just impossible. You know, that, that works for professional basketball players, but not for classical guitarists. <laughs> but he did. He made enough money at 30 to retire fully from ever having to work again. 
And so there he is fly fishing in Montana because that's what he wanted to do. And then he heard John MacArthur preach on living your life for the glory of God. And he was aware of a couple things. One is he wasn't. And uh, second, one, second was, that's a really bad thing. And that puts him in a very bad place with the creator of the universe. And so he began to turn his life around. And he said, I knew how to do two things. I knew how to fly fish and I knew how to play guitar. And for whatever reason, he felt like playing guitar would be the better use of glorifying God with his days. <laughs> now, he was actually a champion fly fisher, as you might guess. Um, but he did feel like playing guitar would be it. And so by the time I... Uh, met him, which would be the summer after that letter exchange. He was a very established guitarist, doing it for the glory of God, freely sharing his testimony as he had opportunity. Now, I say all that because it, it really represents what this passage is about. He seasoned his conversation with salt. He didn't overwhelm the conversation with a very forceful gospel presentation, you know, turn or burn, but he did authentically season that conversation with salt. And he answered, so the passage says to answer each one. May God give us wisdom so that we know how to answer each one. And so here was this one he's talking to across the country, this young aspiring guitarist, and he knew how to answer that guy. Maybe he didn't feel like I can answer every guy in the whole world, but I can talk to that guy. And this is what this guy needs to hear, or this, this, this is what he felt like I needed to hear. And in the end, it was. So that was in December of 1989, and then in January of 1990, I was saved. So pretty much for the reasons that he presented, a purpose in life, and I'm in trouble before the Lord. I'm going to give my life to the Lord. And so in some ways, it mapped onto his, his experience in a, in, you know, a less famous kind of way, but it mapped onto his experience very closely. That was one of the things, one of those last straws God used to draw me to himself. So that's what we're going to talk about today, answering each one. So as we live our lives and, and God brings different people into our lives, how do we answer each one in the way that is needed for that moment? So we're in Colossians 4, 2 through 6. We're going to spend four weeks in these, these five verses, but they're, but they're loaded with content. So the first two sermons we've already heard have focused on prayer significantly. But the next two, mine and then John's next week, are going to focus on what we actually say. Because actually, there's a lot of emphasis in this passage on things that we say, how we ought to speak, um, that I may make it clear, and then this morning, how, how I know how to answer each person. Paul's writing this, uh, as we said a couple weeks ago, he's writing this from that Roman house arrest that's described in Acts 28, that two-year house arrest. There's, there's relative freedom in that house arrest, but there he is, chained to a Roman guard, nonetheless. And he continues his ministry uh, interpersonally, as people come to him and he shares the gospel with them, but also writing letters. So he writes Ephesians, he writes Philippians, he writes Colossians, he writes Philemon while he's in prison in that house arrest. So God uses that time in his life. Now John's sermon next week is the, is the fourth in the series. He's going to focus on the Romans wrote. Uh, maybe you've heard about that, but it's basically a way of sharing the gospel that uses the book of Romans and some of the uh, excerpted, uh, excerpted verses from the, uh, from the book of Romans. And that, so the focus there is on making it clear, making the gospel clear. And so my emphasis this morning is more on the, maybe the diversity of ways that we might have to share the gospel with somebody or to communicate important things about the gospel. And so these are, these are kind of tools to have in your tool belt. There's, no, there's not a single thing here, but there's several things uh, which I think are helpful in different ways. So that's what we're going to talk about, answering each person, answering each person. And I believe we have five points Yes, we have five points. 
this morning. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your, your creativity, your individuality, the way that you customize a gospel presentation to a person according to their needs, their history, their burdens, their concerns, their fears, their sins. You approach each of us in just the right way. And we know that you use frail vessels as you do that, people like us, people that are anxious and not sure what to say in a given conversation. We stumble through it. Sometimes we even say things that aren't even true. And yet still, you use these gospel moments uh, to bring souls into the kingdom. So we give you praise for being a God who saves. You are the one who seeks and saves the lost. And you sent Jesus because of that, because you are the God who is seeking and saving the lost. So Father, we pray that you would use this this sermon series to multiply gospel conversations in our church. We pray the next three to six months there would be more gospel presentations uh, because of this sermon series. Equip us, Lord. As inadequate as we might feel, we pray that you would nonetheless give us courage to speak and to act and to love others by introducing them as much as we can to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, our first point is gonna be a flyover of the passage to focus on this phrase, answer each one. So point one is answer each one. Now, we've already said that Paul starts off the passage by this emphasis on prayer. And then in verse five, he takes a turn. So he's asking for prayer for himself, and we use that as a, as a reminder of the, of the way that we need to pray. But then in verse five, he turns. He says, to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So there's, there's the walking and there's the talking. Those are the basic two uh, ideas that we get in verses five and six. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. And then he talks about what we actually say. Let our, let our speech be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to respond. And so the, in walking with wisdom, we start with the basic commandments of the Bible, but then, but then we, have to, we have to be wise because, because life every day brings dozens and dozens of situations that don't have a specific commandment that lines up with it. So we need the wisdom of the Lord. How do we act? How do we respond in this, in this situation? So walk in wisdom. But we're gonna highlight this seasoned with salt, this speech component of our outreach uh, to others, to those who are outsiders, outside the church. How ought we to respond to each person? Now that implies that there's a very customized thing that we say or, some, or a thing that we do with uh, this person that's in front of us. Paul says, each person. So one person you, you confront, they might need a very thoughtful, detailed explanation of something. Another person just needs you to sit there and listen. They've had a very difficult life or situation that they're walking through. They just need you to listen. And your act of listening attentively, uh, lovingly, is radical to them. It's a radical expression of the gospel to them. One person is rejecting Christ very stubbornly and it's connected to a a fierce immorality in their life. Another person is actually being drawn to Christ, but they still have a few questions. Well, obviously for each of these people, you need a, a different kind of approach. 
So you need wisdom in how you ought to answer each person. And as we've already said, this does remind us that God saves us as individuals. We have individual concerns and questions and sins. The solution in some ways is the same. Jesus is truly the solution. It's the one solution for all problems. But how Christ comes to us is a very individual thing. What you needed to hear when you got saved is different than what someone else in this room needed to hear when they got saved. The overlap is obviously significant, but there's a lot of, a lot of details, a lot of subtleties which are very different. James Anderson uh, wrote a book called Why Should I Believe Christianity? If you remember, he spoke here in 2019. So that's, that sermon, uh, that's, that um, uh, evangelism series is available on our website. He wrote this, in some ways that series came from this book, Why Should I Believe Christianity? Excellent book on evangelism. But he wrote a blog post and he asked this question, can we prove the existence of God? Can we prove the existence of God? And so his answer, of course, is very thoughtful. He uh, is an apologetics professor at RTS in Charlotte, Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte. His first PhD was in math. His second one was in apologetics. So he's he's not dumb. (laughs) And so in, in this question, can we prove the existence of God? Here's what he said. Here's my modest proposal. I think we have this. No, there's a no on this. It's online. The sermon notes are online, um, but we don't have it for you live. So he said this. Here's my modest proposal. We should think of proofs, proofs for the existence of God. We should think of proofs in terms of proofs for a particular person. In much the same way that mathematical proofs are system-dependent, So proofs of the existence of God need to be seen as person-dependent. The question, can we prove the existence of God, then becomes, can we prove the existence of God to so-and-so, you know, to the each one that I'm talking to right now? My suggestion is that if we can show, without begging the question, that the existence of God logically follows from from, from propositions that a person already accepts or is willing on reflection to accept, then we have indeed proven the existence of God to that person. If they fail to see the existence of God, to see that the existence of God follows from what they already believe or take for granted, or if they prefer to abandon other beliefs rather than to affirm the existence of God, the problem doesn't lie in the proof. In other words, as you're talking to this, each one in front of you, answer each one, as you're talking to each one, you, you just, you're able to, through conversation and relationship with them, determine where they're, uh, where, what they believe and where they lack faith and when it comes to the existence of God. And so you actually can prove the existence of God to that person based on what they already believe. But he adds that important qualifier at the end there. They might still reject what you're saying. In other words, they might still reject that proof for the existence of God that you're presenting to them. And what Anderson tells us is, is the problem at that point doesn't lie in the proof. It lies in their heart, their sinful, resistant, stubborn heart. You know, in the face of true and overwhelming evidence, they're still gonna say, no, God does not exist. I reject it. Not for any good reason. It's just because they don't want to accept it. So as we answer each person, that's important to remember both sides of that. Yes, we can answer each person, and yet you might answer each person and they're still gonna reject what you're saying because of the sin in their hearts. Not because of what you're saying. It's because of the sin in their hearts.
So that's number one, answer each person. Number two, answer with your story. So now we're getting to some of the practical, practical ways we might actually answer the person who's in front of us. Number two is we answer with our story, our testimony. One of the ways you can answer someone that you're talking to is by sharing your own conversion testimony. So Christopher Parkening shared his own conversion testimony to me. He answered my concern, answered my need with, a, with his own story. And it happened to be in that case, it was very powerful for me. And one of, the, one of the great things about sharing your story is that you can say a lot of things and you can do a lot of things in that story in a very non-threatening and disarming way. If I tell you that you're just wrong and wrong about something, you're immoral in some area and you're stupid to believe what you believe, chances are very good you're going to be offended and defensive in that conversation. But I can say all of those things as I tell my story. I'm not going to, it's very indirect, that's true. They might have to put a lot of, connect a lot of dots, but I can probably say all those things actually in my story as I share with them. So in some way, and that's, this is kind of the, the Mary Poppins approach to evangelism. So a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to put the gospel medicine in this sugar story of my conversion. Now, I'm not lying to them. This, this is actually what happened to me. However, it's much more palatable to them. It's much more tasty because it's in, this, it's in, a, it's in a story of what happened to another person. Now, this is well illustrated in Paul's own life. It's fascinating if you, if you, if you go to Acts 21, start at Acts 21 and read to Acts 26. Not, don't do it now, but Acts 21 to Acts 26, those chapters, what you find is Paul repeatedly telling his story in very different ways depending on who he's talking to. It's a fascinating study in your testimony and what you can say or not say depending on who is in front of you. So in Acts 22, he's talking, this is the first uh, telling of a story. He's arrested. There's a mob of people in front of him. And so he's talking to a very broad, diverse audience. And he tells the whole story. So I was a Jew. He goes back to his birth. I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia. He's brought up in this city as in the city of Jerusalem. He's educated at the feet of Gamaliel, uh, the Pharisee. Talks about his life as a Pharisee, what a dedicated, devoted Pharisee he was. He's on his way to Damascus and then he tells the Damascus Road experience, his conversion story. Jesus reveals himself to him. He's blinded. Then Then this guy Ananias comes to him, prays for him. He's able to see, he's baptized. He, in that story, he even shares the story of, of him being there, blessing and, and actually working for the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. In other words, that's what I was like. I'm not that now, but that's what I was like. And then he finishes by saying that he's called to the Gentiles to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And everything's good until he says that. And then things just erupt. And so the mob wants to kill him at that point. The Romans have to pull him away. But you can see to a general audience, he tells the whole thing. And then you get to Acts 23, Sadducees and Pharisees. So the council is present, just the Jewish leaders and those who are gonna judge him. So the Sadducees and the Pharisees are there. He's aware that these two groups are there. He knows all about these two groups. He himself is a Pharisee. And so all he says is, brothers, I am a Pharisee, son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And it's just like a grenade. He just pulls the pin, drops it in the middle, and then this huge debate erupts between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees are Sadducee because they reject the resurrection. Pharisees, 
Pharisees, on the other hand, believe what the Old Testament says about the future resurrection of the dead, the living and the dead. And so this huge battle just, just goes on in front of him. He's not lying. He is, in fact, on trial because of the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And then you get to Acts 24, he's talking to Felix, the governor, now this government official. And he, again, tells the whole story. But now when he tells the story, he wants to, he wants to say that Christianity is, a, is, is an outgrowth, is the right fulfillment of the Old Testament. It's not some random sect that is a you know, violation of the Old Testament. It is the fulfillment, the completion. It's the, it's the religion based on the Messiah. And so he affirms his innocence. He confesses that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And then he finishes by saying, once again, it, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. And then one final time was in Acts 26. There's a different group now. It's Portius Festus, Agrippa the king, Bernice, his sister, political figures. But once again, he, just, he wants to say that what I am teaching, what I am proclaiming as a Christian, as a member of the way, is simply the Old Testament fulfilled So he speaks of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. And then he finishes by, in some ways, acknowledging that they they certainly believe in an uh, an omnipotent God, an all-powerful God. And so then he just asks at the end, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? If God is all-powerful, Why is it thought incredible that he would raise Jesus from the dead? In other words, every approach he gives is customized according to the audience that's in front of him. So Paul wants us to imitate that. We're not apostolic. We know that. Our our words are not going to become inspired scripture. But the basic approach we are to imitate. Who's in front of me? What do they need to hear? What do I need to say and not say according to answering this person? So here's some things about sharing our testimonies. Yes, we have this. All right, so what about you? Some thoughts about sharing your testimony. One is just a practical matter. It is good to keep in mind, how much time do I have to share the gospel with this person or to share my story with this person? You know, is this, is this the plane's going down, we have 60 seconds? Or is this my mother-in-law? And we just got married. And potentially, I've got 30 years or more, uh, with this, this woman to share, the, to share the gospel. In that conversation, I don't need to load everything into the first conversation with her. So how much time do I have? And how much understanding does this person have? Is Christianity brand new? You know, you married into a completely unchristian family. The, their, uh, your, your wife's family has no understanding whatsoever of Christian truth. Your wife got saved miraculously despite the family that she grew up, when, grew up in. Do they have any understanding? Or are they thoroughly churched, but really off in some profound ways? They know a lot of things, but they are still not Christian in in different ways. How much understanding do they have? And then it's good to think through your own testimony. So what, what are the details of your conversion? And it's always good to think through, what are the details of your conversion? Where were you saved as much as you can know? When were you saved? How were you saved? Why were you saved? What was it that drew you to Christ as much as you can recall? 
Now, some of you, were, you grew up and you actually don't remember not being a Christian. As, as, long, as far back as you can go in your memory, you always believed that Jesus was the Son of God and you were trying to follow him as your Lord and Savior. You believed in him as your Lord and Savior. You felt like you were a member of the saved and received his forgiveness. As far back as you can remember. Well, it's gonna be tricky to think through all those things. Sometimes it's helpful to ask, what, based on what you know of yourself today, what would you be like if you, if you weren't a Christian? Based on what you know of yourself today, your tendencies, your sins, your, uh, the things that tempt you, what would your life be like if you were not a Christian? Sometimes it's helpful to think through your own conversion story based on those quest- kinds of questions. But it is good to, to just to, to be able to have a way of conveying to someone, yes, you grew up in a Christian home, but you're not a Christian because you grew up in a Christian home. So somehow you have to articulate that. You know, Billy Graham's, you know, his famous, being in a Christian, being in a church or being in a Christian home doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. (laughs) You're a Christian because you believe in Jesus. You are his and he is yours. Yes, you grew up in a Christian home and God was merciful to, to, to bring you the gospel in all kinds of various ways as you grew up, but you're not a Christian because of that. What aspect of the gospel was most compelling to you at the time you were saved? What things became clear as you grew as a Christian? You didn't understand everything, but what were some major things that God really brought home to you in those first year or two or three as a Christian? So those are just some quick thoughts on sharing your testimony. Answer that when you're answering each one, you can answer with your story and cover a lot of ground in very powerful ways. The third thing we want to talk about is answering. This gets more complex and you have to do some more prep ahead of time. But sometimes the right answer is to answer with a very comprehensive worldview. Answer with a comprehensive worldview. Number three. One of the powerful things about Christianity is its comprehensive ability to explain everything. Not most things. Everything. Christianity has a a much more plausible explanation of scientists that don't believe in Christianity than scientists have of explaining Christianity. We get it. Christianity gets it. The Bible gets it. Christianity has great explanatory power, you could say. And sometimes as you're talking to someone, you realize they kind of need the big picture answer. They need to see some of that. They need to be drawn into some of that. Now, Paul himself sometimes operated from that perspective. So in his famous sermon in Acts 17 in Athens, he's, he's talking to people who have no background in Christianity. And he's assuming they have no background in, in the Old Testament, which is different than some of his other sermons where he, he very much assumes they have a, a deep background in the Old Testament. But in this sermon, he, he assumes they, they don't have any background in Christianity or the Old Testament. And so he starts from a very different place. He gives, he gives a, the worldview the whole worldview of Christianity. I'm gonna give you the big picture and then based on their response, he'll take the conversation in different directions after that. And so this is just an excerpt. The whole passage is longer, but here's just an excerpt. So the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Now these Greeks and Romans would understand temples made by man, right? 
Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the, all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So he steps into the Garden of Eden with Adam there. And then fast forward in, the, in his sermon, he says, the times of ignorance God overlooked. In other words, I know that you don't know him. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So that man, of course, has a name. We know him as the Lord Jesus Christ. He was raised from the dead. And by that man, God the Father will indeed judge heaven and earth. He will judge the world in righteousness. But you see, you don't have to know your Bible to, to understand what he's saying there. So sometimes as you're communicating to people, that's a helpful approach, just to tell the story without all the details or the names and the places that are, that are mentioned in the Bible. Christianity has the ability to explain all things, as I said. And that's what makes it a, such a powerful worldview. So it's not, it's not just a few things, you know, success in the workplace. You can go to a lot of different sources to find tips on success in the workplace or some really good tips on happy marriages. You can find a lot of good sources on tips on happy marriages, not as good as the Bible itself, but still good tips on happy marriages. Or you can find ways to address a, pro- a very specific problem, you know, anxiety or uh, such things. But the power of Christianity is it explains not just some of those things. It does explain some of those things. However, it It explains all things, as we've said. And one thing Christianity explains is evil. So sometimes the reality of evil is presented as a reason to reject God. So the logic usually goes something like this. If God were all-powerful and all-good, evil would not exist. Evil does exist. So God must not be all-powerful or he is not all-good. So there's some line of thinking like that. Now, there's different ways Christians have, have addressed that issue. I think the best answer is, is the traditional Reformed answer, which is the notion that God is all-powerful and all-good, but he's actually after something greater than simply our, our comfort. And I, I don't mean that in a, in a condescending way. He's after his own glory. Things happen for his glory, not ours. And he's the only being in the universe that can act that way, and it's not selfish or inappropriate. He is the being who is all glorious. And so if he does things for his own glory, it's entirely appropriate. For him to do anything else would be idolatry. He does all things for his own glory. And so the reality of evil and the solution for evil is all for his own glory. But the explanatory power of Christianity goes further. And I think, I, I think this is a, um, a useful approach. The reality of evil is actually an argument for Christianity. It's not an argument against Christianity. The reality of evil is an argument for Christianity. And I'm going to pull here from the Christian philosopher Alvin Plantinga. Um, he's got a great article called Two Dozen or So Theistic Arguments. And the logic he presents is this. Everyone acknowledges the reality of evil. At at some level, they all acknowledge the reality of evil. And this is something 
objectively terrible, you know, truly evil. <clears throat> they might not believe that they are evil or that they've committed evil or even received an evil treatment, but they do believe that there is such a thing as something objectively terrible and evil. You know, he, he uses this phrase, genuine and horrifying evil or objective horrifyingness. And, and there's something in us that revolts against it. People believe it and they revolt against it. There's there's this inner response in them that says, this is wrong. This is terrible. This is wrong. Somebody needs to be punished and judged because of this. But if there's no God and all there is 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 just stuff, matter, we're just animals that are evolving and, and responding instinctively, then that kind of strong sense of evil and that, kind of, and that kind of revulsion against evil, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't mean anything. <clears throat> I don't even know what you mean by evil if you don't believe in God, a moral God who's behind evil and good. Or a God in whose universe you live where there is evil and good. So the notion that there are evil things that people have done and it troubles us. It's the the two sides of that. That's where Christianity can explain that. And just a raw, materialistic, naturalistic explanation of the universe just cannot explain that in any kind of satisfactory way. So that's, that's one end of the spectrum. But then you go to the other end of the spectrum. A purely naturalistic or evolutionary uh, worldview can't explain the love of a mother for a child or the beauty of a sunset just exploding with color over the ocean or the mountains. You know, a perfect piece of music, a painting where it's not just capturing the thing in some kind of accurate way, but in in just this complete multi-layered profound way. This painter has captured something. A perfectly cooked steak. The thing with those, those kinds of experiences that we've all had is you don't experience it in this kind of, um, you know, when you take your vitamin in the morning, if you, if you take vitamins, it's a pretty, it's a pretty uh, behavioral thing. I'm just going to open, the, open the, the pill thing and I'm going to take my pill and I'm, I'm going to go my way. This, there's no emotional interaction with that experience. But those things I'm describing here, there's this, there's, there are things inside of us that want to be expressed. We want to express gratitude. We want to express worship. I want to express something to someone far greater than me that I think is actually behind all these experiences that I'm having right now. And that's, that's the power and beauty and glory of Christianity is it doesn't just capture the good and evil side of things, the dark, sinister, but it also captures the beautiful. There is a God who gives good gifts, who made everything. He made this creation for us. We've ruined it in a lot of ways, but still there are some amazing and beautiful blessings in this creation. And I think the, the comprehensive power of Christianity is that it, it sees both of those things and everything in between. So we answer with a worldview. And then third, we answer with confident history. It depends on the person you're talking to, but sometimes the person you're talking to just need to understand that the thing you're talking about, this Christianity thing, is a historical thing. It's rooted in this history which they can study and discover and read about. 
You know, maybe they're tempted to blow off Christianity as just one myth among many myths. Now, there's, the, there's that great reality where J.R. Tolkien persuades C.S. Lewis about Christianity. It's the myth that became true. It's the myth that's true. But even there, it's not just a myth. So, so someone who's tempted to blow off Christianity as just a myth is, is, can give the impression that believing in Christianity is like believing in fairies. You know, I, yeah, I used to believe that, but then I, I grew up, as all thinking people do. But to blow off Christianity as a myth like that is, is to miss something essential and powerful about Christianity, and that's the way it's rooted in history. And it's a very public and accessible history. So it's not built on, on the private dreams or visions of some prophet who sat on a hill and got this, these angelic gold tablets out of the sky that no one's ever seen, or it's just some vision, and, and the rest of the world is, is meant to just take his word for it. Oh, okay. You seem really persuaded. It must be true. But it, the history of Christianity is one that involves Roman emperors. You can read about those Roman emperors and local governors, local magistrates, specific villages and cities that still exist on Google, Google Maps when you search on them. Written documents you can see in museums. Verifiable, verifi- verifiable facts, leaders whose names are in history books, even in secular history books. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying there's no faith element to the history that we're talking about in Christianity. I'm just saying that it is deeply embedded in a history. And especially that's true when it comes to the history of Christ's resurrection. You know, that's, that's the historical fact that is what brings us here together. Without that historical fact, there would be no church, there would be no Christianity. And that there's a lot of things we can say in, in, in speaking to the resurrection as a, as a historical fact, but one thing which, which I've read before, which I'll read again because it's so good. This is from Chuck Colson. So, you know, is the resurrection an unholy hoax? Yeah, not this quote, not that quote. We'll get to that quote in a second, Jacob. So Chuck Colson, um, this is from the Breakpoints. Break uh, .org. He did this in 2002. You know, Easter uh, was just around the corner, and so this was his, his opportunity to, re- to think about the resurrection again and the historical reality of the resurrection. And so Chuck Colson writes very memorably, so I have, I've been challenged myself many times on the resurrection. My answer is always that the disciples and 500 others gave eyewitness accounts of seeing Jesus risen from the tomb. But then I'm asked, how do you know they were telling the truth? Maybe they were perpetrating a hoax. My answer to that comes from an unlikely source, Watergate. Watergate involved a conspiracy to cover up, perpetuated by the closest aides to the President of the United States, the most powerful men in America, who were intensely loyal to their president. But one of them, John Dean, turned state's evidence that is that is, testified against Nixon, as he put it, to save his own skin. And he did so only two weeks after informing the president about what was really going on. Two weeks. The real cover-up, the lie, could only be held together for two weeks, and then everybody else jumped ship in order to save themselves. Now, the fact is that all those around the president were facing, all that those around the president were facing was embarrassment, maybe prison. Nobody's life was at stake. But what about the disciples? Twelve powerless men, peasants really, were facing not just embarrassment or political disgrace, but beatings, stonings, 
execution. Every single one of the disciples insisted to their dying breaths that they, had, that they had physically seen Jesus bodily raised from the dead. Don't you think that one of these apostles would have cracked before being beheaded or stoned? That one of them would have made a deal with the authorities? None did. You see, men will give their lives for something they believe to be true. They will never give their lives for something they know to be false. The Watergate cover-up reveals the true nature of humanity. Even political zealots at the pinnacle of power will, in the crunch, save their own necks, even at the expense of the ones they profess to serve so loyally. But the apostles could not deny Jesus because they had seen him face to face, and they knew he had risen from the dead. Nothing less than a resurrected Christ could have caused those men to maintain to their dying whispers that Jesus is alive and is Lord. It's an historic fact, one convincingly established by the evidence, he has risen. Amen. He is risen indeed. These are the men who the the Bible describes as turning the world upside down. And they did that because they had seen the resurrected Christ. There's a lot we could walk through in terms of evidence, historical evidence for the resurrection. Uh, We won't go there now. Let Let me finish with this Michael Kruger quote. In the context here is he's, he's exploring the, the evidence for the resurrection, paints a picture of how unlikely it is that they would believe in such a thing as this Jesus at that time being raised from the dead. So many things operating against them believing that. And that brings us to another fact that I think is harder to challenge. It is an often overlooked fact that provides the necessary context for the discussion. That fact is simply this, the earliest Christians came to believe against all odds and against all expectations that Jesus of Nazareth had been raised from the dead. Sometimes we need to answer with confident history. And there's lots of places we could go to look up uh, ways to think about the, the, it's historical evidence. We don't want to think that there's any DNA evidence that someone's going to find about the resurrection. It doesn't work that way. It's a historical event, so you can find historical evidence for the resurrection. Lots of archaeological evidence can validate various aspects of what we talk about with the resurrection. But there is historical evidence nonetheless. Let me just close with a quick final point. This is five. Answer, the, answer with the book with all the answers. This is kind of a catch-all final point. But sometimes you have no idea how to answer a person who's in front of you. Their concerns are way beyond you. They're, maybe their experience they've been describing is, is just completely foreign to yours. Sometimes a, an indirect approach can be the right approach, and that is simply to ask them if they want to do a Bible study in the Gospel of Mark or the Gospel of John. We'll just get together, we'll read a chapter, and then we'll talk about it. See what it, what it tells us about Jesus and what questions you, that come out of that. And there's two reasons why that's powerful. One is it lets, it lets the Bible kind of provoke the person's questions. So in some ways, it keeps their questions out of kind of the smokescreen category and into real questions about important things. But a second reason why that, that can be a powerful approach is simply what the Bible is. It is the word of God. Powerful things happen when a person encounters the word of God. You can't predict what's gonna happen in a person's life when they encounter the word of God. One of my favorite Martin Luther quotes talks about this. He just wants to connect the Reformation with the word of God. The historical 
explosion that is the Reformation and then what he believes to be true and what is true of the word of God. So he writes very famously, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever afflicted, inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. So sometimes what the answer you need to give is simply, how can I get that person into the word of God? Invite them to do a Bible study. So may God help us to answer each one in a way that is loving and sensitive, but yet truthful and accurate. We want to be those who are loving our neighbor in this conversation and not just truth yellers. But we do want to be truthful. We want to be accurate. We want to proclaim God's word, the gospel, the facts about Jesus. So a few quick final reminders. Remember you're talking to a person you know, in these, in these gospel conversations, this isn't some, uh, you know, uh, practice debate with an AI thing in front of you. This is a person. They're going to they're gonna live forever one, in one place or another. This, this person in front of you is going to exist forever. We want to love them as a person. They're made in the image of God. And then one of the, one of the important commandments for evangelism, thou shalt not be a jerk. <laughs> lose the debates. Just, just acknowledge you're going to lose debates. That, that is going to happen as Christians. People are going are to say things to you. You have no answer. But don't be a jerk <clears throat> just because you're defensive and, and offended, you know, personally offended. This isn't about you at all. It's about them and it's about the Lord. And when in doubt, ask another question. When in doubt, ask another question just so you can get to know the person more, what their real concern is. If you're not sure about what their real concern, they've told you a bunch of things, but you're not yet sure what their real concern and their real stumbling block is, ask more questions. And then in all of this, answering each one kind of discussion, remember that the most important place where you can do this is with your own children. Each of your children is different. Each of your children has different concerns. Each of your children is gonna receive different aspects of the gospel differently. Each of your children will have a, have a different conversion testimony. It might have a lot of overlapping facts to it, but it, it's gonna be different for each one of them. So don't assume that what your firstborn daughter needed to hear is exactly what your lastborn son needs to hear. Maybe it's, maybe it's true. I mean, there's, there's some basic truth they need to hear, of course. The reality of sin, the reality of Christ, the reality of the cross, those things. But how you communicate that, the kind of, the kind of related, the relating do you do with them as you're evangelizing them, that's got to be customized according to each one. And as with all important things you want, the, want to be a part of your children, start young. Start before they understand what you're saying. Preach Christ and don't stop preaching Christ. I mean, just don't stop preaching Christ, right? Christians need Christ, so we don't stop preaching Christ to our children. Well, let me close in prayer that God would help us to answer each one according to the, the need of the moment and the need of their hearts. Father, we thank you for the gospel that there is a remedy for our sin.
there is a solution to our greatest problem, which is sin. We give you praise and thanks that you sent Jesus, your only son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Lord, we pray that you would use us as happy mouthpieces of that truth. Let us love him. Let us cherish him. Let us cherish this gospel message. And we pray that you would just continue to pour out your wisdom upon us so that as we encounter each one in our lives, we would, we would know what needs to be said or not said. Save the lost, Lord. Save the lost in our homes and in our neighborhoods and our families, our extended families, our workplaces, our community in this church. Save the lost, Lord. Help us to be a part of that. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.